0: Welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 157. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love Talking Tudors and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a fabulous Anne Boleyn themed gift bundle. A huge thank you to Dr. Owen Emerson, Sandra Vasoli, Sarah Morris, Lucy Churchill and Catherine Holman for contributing to this prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. This weekend, I'll be chatting to Emma Louisa Cahill about Catherine of Aragon. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for the event. In other exciting news, if you've always been fascinated by the life and times of Anne Boleyn and have dreamed of learning from leading Boleyn experts, including Dr. Owen Emerson and Professor Susanna Lipscomb, I invite you to join 365 Days with Anne Boleyn, a year-long online journey of learning and discovery that I'll be leading in 2023. You'll find a full list of what's included and all other details on my website. I do hope you’ll consider joining us on this unique and immersive learning experience. Now on to today's episode, I'm delighted that joining me on the show to talk about Elizabeth I and her mother’s memory is Jack Beasley. Jack is a postgraduate in heritage and queenship studies from Queen Mary University of London and historic royal palaces. Jack's BA dissertation focused on the memory of Anne Boleyn in the reign of Elizabeth I, for which he won the King Alfred Prize for Best Performance in History 2019. His MA dissertation, meanwhile, focused on the impact of Scottish civic nationalism on gendered heritage interpretation in Scotland. Jack is now in his first year of studying for a PhD in the 16th century sexuality, looking at how the Tudors viewed homosexuality and evidence for same-sex relationships amongst the Tudor elite. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical interlude. What you're about to hear is 16-year-old Rose Byers' first single, called The Lament of Anne Boleyn. It's written and performed by Rose Byers and accompanied by Aaron Jones.
1: I loved a man once. He was a good, and I was his mistress. He took me into his loving arms, and he vowed I'd be his bride. Jesus, receive my soul. Oh Lord God, have pity. Divorced from Catherine of Aragon, outraging the church. We were married, and I became his queen and gave birth to our daughter, Jesus. Old had Elizabeth after his mother and Henry loved her dearly, but he still longed for a son and heir and I could not do it for him Jesus. Forgive me when I'm gone. Jesus receive my soul oh Lord God have pity on my soul.
0: Welcome to Talking Tudors Jack. How are you?
2: I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yes, it's lovely to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this. So let's begin by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background.
2: Yeah, um, so my name is Jack Beasley. I'm um, 23 and I'm currently studying for my PhD in 16th century sexuality. Um, Before that, I studied for my MA at Queen Mary University of London with Historic Royal Palaces, which um, involved lots of work experience at Hampton Court and the Tower of London. So that was fantastic to see all of that. And then before that, I studied for my BA at um, Winchester University, where I wrote my dissertation, The Legacy of Anne Boleyn in the Brain of Elizabeth I, um, which contributed towards me winning the King Alfred Prize for Best Performance in History 2019. And then obviously that's the discussion of our podcast
0: today. Yes, exactly. And I've had the pleasure of reading your wonderful dissertation, which was entitled The Impact of Anne Boleyn's Legacy in the Reign of Elizabeth I. So what motivated you to explore this particular subject?
2: So I've been fascinated with Anne Boleyn ever since I can remember. Um, As a kid, I used to read and watch everything Anne Boleyn and Tudor related. And um, this is quite nerdy, but I used to get just as much enjoyment out of watching history documentaries as I did cartoons and things like that um, and one of the documentaries that I used to watch over and over were David Starkey's documentaries actually on his on the six wives and also his documentary on Elizabeth the and in the first episode um, of his Elizabeth the documentary he says that Elizabeth airbrushed Anne from her memory and even as a kid something seemed odd about this and it just made me want to find out more. So in that sense, the seed was sown at a very early age. that If I went to university, this was something that I definitely wanted to look more into. Let's dive
0: into the the topic, I suppose. What Mm. immediate impact did Anne Boleyn's execution have on the young Elizabeth? I think to better understand this we need to actually
2: know what Elizabeth's um, life was like whilst Anne was still alive. So obviously Elizabeth was born on the 7th of September 1533 and a big deal has usually been made out that her birth was a huge disappointment. I think one historian said that she was the most, her birth was the most unwelcome royal birth in royal history and I don't actually buy into this. Um, Anne had shown that she was capable of bearing healthy children with Elizabeth's birth. And at this point, there was no reason to suggest that she couldn't then go on and have further children, further healthy children. You know, hindsight is a is a wonderful thing. And Anne's Maids of Honour actually noted that Henry declared that he would rather beg from door to door rather than give Anne up after Elizabeth's birth. So I think he still clearly loved her at this point. And, um, you know, far from being a disappointment, Elizabeth replaced Princess Mary in the line of succession and was at this point the only lawful heir to the throne and she was treated in every inch a princess. Anne Boleyn was absolutely smitten with her and um, kept her on a velvet cushion beside her throne which I think is always like a kind of a nice image to have Elizabeth's household um, actually cost Henry £2,000 a year up until March 1535, which was twice the expenditure of Princess Mary's household before she had been declared illegitimate. So things weren't as bad as historians have made out, I don't think. And as far as this little girl was concerned, you know, she had an extremely privileged, happy and secure early life. But obviously all of this came crashing down with Anne's execution on the 19th of May, 1536, just two days before um, Anne and Henry's marriage had been declared invalid um, on the grounds that Henry had had a previous sexual relationship with Mary Boleyn, who was Anne Boleyn's sister. And the fact that Anne had also been accused of sleeping with her own brother, George Boleyn, there was this sort of double charge of incest against Elizabeth. And this followed her for the rest of her life. And she was formally declared illegitimate on the 8th of June, which demoted her to the Lady Elizabeth rather than Princess Elizabeth. And with this reduction of status naturally came a decline in the size of her household. And the exquisite clothing which Anne Boleyn had provided for her came to a standstill. And Elizabeth quickly outgrew her entire wardrobe. Um, and by August 1536 had practically nothing to wear. We've got this um, extraordinary letter from Margaret Bryan, who was her governess and she writes to Thomas Cromwell that Elizabeth has no clothes and is kind of begging him really to you know send some clothes for Elizabeth but she also says that she doesn't know how to organise herself, she doesn't know how to address Elizabeth, she doesn't know how to order the household. So effectively what this shows is that after Anne's execution Elizabeth had just been forgotten about whilst Henry was off marrying Jane Seymour and you know doing all of that and we might think that Elizabeth being only three wouldn't have been aware of any of this but I think we all know she was very intelligent she was a very astute child and um, when she was styled lady rather than princess she was keenly aware of it and I think she had to quote something like how haps it governor yesterday my lady princess but today but my lady Elizabeth. So she was keenly aware of her reduction in status. So I think the immediate impact of Anne's Fall was grave, to say the least. You know, her whole world was turned upside down. Um, She lost her mother, her status, her legitimacy, and was neglected by Henry.
0: Yeah, that letter you mentioned from Lady Bryan is just heartbreaking, isn't it? Because you get a real sense of, of the difficulty that she was in at this point. What impact do you think Anne's execution had on Elizabeth in terms of long-term effects? Do you mean
2: psychological impacts?
0: Or, that would be good you know, to something? explore that, yeah. yeah.
2: So when it comes to long-term effects, um, there were many when it comes to easy attacks on Elizabeth. So Anne's memory was constantly used to debase and threaten Elizabeth's queenship, especially as her reign advanced into the 1570s and 80s. Um, Anne's memory became more destructive and salacious. But as far as psychological impacts go, I'm not really sure that there were many. Um, Some historians have noted that Elizabeth suffered from the Oedipus complex, which is where a child has a sort of sexual desire for the parent of the opposite sex and a um, sense of rivalry with the parent of the same sex. And this has been used to sort of explain Elizabeth's adulation of Henry and her silence surrounding Anne. But actually... I don't really buy into this. I think Elizabeth's affirmation of Henry was really centred around people accusing her of not being his child, and she needed to protect her legitimacy and claim to the throne. So, and the fact that Anne's legacy was used to tarnish her reputation and her claim to the throne, it was just politically astute for her to not associate herself too much with Anne. So I think that, so there's definite insecurity there, I think, um, which can be you know, seen as a long term, a psychological long term effect of Anne's execution, um, secu- insecurity around her legitimacy. I think also her refusal and I think fear of marriage stems from Anne's execution. I think it showed to Elizabeth that marriage could be dangerous for women rather than being a um, source of protection. As it was made out to be, um, and I think this was really sort of nailed to the mast with um, um, with uh, Catherine Howard's execution in 1542. Elizabeth was only eight um, at this point, and she confided in Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, her great favourite later on, that she would never marry. So I think the seeds were sown for Elizabeth that marriage was dangerous as a young child, and then with Catherine Howard's execution, it was really nailed home. So we've got insecurity there and a fear of marriage, which I think stems from. Anne Boleyn's execution. I think that's as far as it goes with psychological effects.
0: And in terms of Elizabeth's feelings towards her mother, we have, you know, Mm. a variety of opinions here when it comes to what people think Elizabeth thought of her mother. What did you find during your research?
2: Yeah, so I think Elizabeth's feelings towards Anne are difficult to unravel, really, as she never spoke publicly on the issue. Um, So what we need to do, I think, is look for her actions rather than her words. And I think in this case, they really do speak louder than words. Firstly, I think it's important to say that contrary to popular belief, Elizabeth did actually speak about Anne. Um, Historians have often said that she never mentioned her. But we have this report from the Venetian ambassador in 1557, um, so the penultimate year of Queen Mary's reign, which refutes this. And he comments that Elizabeth did not view herself as inferior to Queen Mary and didn't believe herself less legitimate, um, alleging in her own favour that her mother would never cohabit with the king unless by way of marriage with the authority of the church. And what's important here is that he's not referring to a particular occurrence in his report or a personal discussion with Elizabeth. He's actually recording what he's heard around the court. And he says that Elizabeth alleges in her favour. And this is meaning that she speaks of this, not she said this. So it's plausible that he's referring to multiple occasions where Elizabeth actually spoke out in defence of Anne and her legitimacy. You know, it's true that this was to defend her claim to the throne, but the fact that she is openly invoking the subject of Anne at Mary's court is dangerous because Mary hated Anne and actually wanted to oust Elizabeth from the succession um, due to characteristics in which Elizabeth resembled Anne. So the fact that she's talking about Anne openly at Mary's court could equally sabotage her rights to the succession, the fact that she's doing this, I think, shows that she genuinely believes in Anne's and Henry's the legality of their marriage and also in Anne's chastity. So I think that's really important. But when Elizabeth became queen, this is where we see subtle references to her belief in Anne's innocence and legitimacy and all of that. So when she became queen, she used Anne's heraldic badge of the white falcon, which originated from the heraldic crest of the butlers, Anne's father, Thomas Blinn, was later recognised as the butler heir in 1529. And Anne adopted the badge as her own um, upon her marriage to Henry that added numerous royal symbols related to her newfound royal status. And it was used really heavily in the propaganda and sort of symbolism of Anne's coronation in 1533 to symbolise that she was Carrying the air that would bring peace and stability to England. And she was, of course, visibly pregnant with Elizabeth um, at this point. And Elizabeth, being this sort of you know, master of iconography and symbolism, would have been aware of the connotations that the badge conveyed. So by continuing to use it, Elizabeth was expressing her mother's legitimacy as Henry's queen. Um, so far, so you know, far from being ashamed of her, she's actually tactfully using Anne's symbols to reinforce her own legitimacy and therefore Anne's legitimacy too. And Elizabeth was also known to promote close Boleyn relatives and have a close relationship with them. For example, Mary Boleyn's children, Catherine and Henry Carey, were Elizabeth's maternal first cousins and perhaps even her half-siblings. But that's another subject, I think. (laughs) And the bond between these Elizabeth and her cousins was evident even before her accession. But once she was queen, it became plainly obvious. Catherine was made chief lady of the bedchamber and Henry was made Baron Hudson, and um, Elizabeth's language in her letters to Catherine and Henry were also informal and affectionate. Um, She referred to Henry as my Harry, for example, and this favour also extended then on to Catherine and Henry's children. Um, So Henry's daughter, another Catherine Carey, was made First Lady of the Bedchamber in 1572 and died shortly before Elizabeth in 1603, and this is really important because um, contemporaries noted that Elizabeth was so grief-stricken at this loss that it actually hastened her own death a few months later. So they obviously enjoyed this really close bond. And Francis Walsingham even noted that this family connection in blood when talking about Henry Carey, that it does somewhat prevail. So he's saying there that, you know, they held great influence based on relation on their Berlin heritage. Um, And this affection for her Carey cousins was also extended to lesser Boleyn relatives who were promoted really far beyond their stations due only to the fact that they were related to Anne Boleyn. And this flurry of favours didn't solely apply to those who were related to Anne, um, but also to those who had just been associated with her during her lifetime. So Matthew Parker, for example, had been Anne's chaplain. Elizabeth appointed her him, sorry, his, um, her first Archbishop of Canterbury in 1559, which he only consented to in consideration of his former relationship with Anne. And this recognition didn't go unnoticed amongst contemporaries because other men began to draw Elizabeth's awareness to the fact that they had held close connections to Anne in hopes of advancement. So not only did Elizabeth enjoy, you know, these close relationships with her Berlin relatives, but others were also brazen enough to draw on their connections with Anne in hopes of being promoted. Um, So I think these are really clear indications that she felt positively about Anne. But of course, I think the most striking piece of evidence is the checkers ring. And this was commissioned in 15, around 1575. And it's a locket ring, which contains two miniature portraits, one of Elizabeth and one of a woman who many historians believe is Anne. Some have challenged this and actually suggested that it's Catherine Parr, I think the likeness is uncanny to descriptions of Anne's appearance and does resemble her the, the few portraits that we have of her. But more importantly, there's an image of a phoenix painted on the enamel on the underside of the basil. And the 1570s was a period of much Protestant veneration towards Anne where she was commonly portrayed as a phoenix who created Elizabeth from her ashes. And Elizabeth was also known to make use of the symbolism of the phoenix bird. You know, we've got the phoenix portrait, for example. So I think this inclusion of the phoenix is the strongest piece of evidence for me, which points to the locket ring being a portrait of Anne, which means that Elizabeth kept a private portrait of her mother on her finger for nearly 30 years, which I think speaks louder than any words on her feelings towards Anne.
0: Definitely doesn't sound like she airbrushed her out of her life, does it? That just, no, it doesn't. <laughs> that's very strong evidence. And the other, the other little piece of evidence that I love is that, of course, Anne was recognised at Elizabeth's coronation. One of the first pageants had. Yeah. I, I still don't know if it was an image of Anne or if there were actors playing. That's not quite clear from the contemporary record, mm. but. There was definitely Anne and her falcon badge there present at the yeah. Coronation for All to See. So I think that really did give people permission, I suppose, to now, mm-hmm. you know, talk about her again and, and yeah. remember her, which is really lovely. So um, how was Anne portrayed by Protestant scholars? And maybe if you can also tell us what you think their motivation was. So obviously I'm talking now about during Elizabeth's reign.
2: So with Elizabeth's succession, a bill was passed in 1559 that proclaimed that any record or sentence that was repugnant towards Anne was now void. And this is really important because it means that for the first time in 23 years, people could actually openly speak positively and write positively about Anne. So Protestant authors began this sort of arduous task of dismantling Anne's, this construct of Anne's whoredom and illegality in order to construct this image of an idealised, saintly queen. Um, And Protestant writings can be split into two periods of Elizabeth's reign, both of which had different objectives. So upon Elizabeth's accession in um, 1558, there was uncertainty surrounding which religious policy she would favour. So early writings championed Anne as the inaugurator of the English Reformation in order to prompt Elizabeth towards a Protestant policy. Um, whereas later works from the 1570s sought to vindicate Henry and Anne's marriage um, in order to protect Elizabeth's legitimacy and claim to the throne from threats of deposition. Uh, one of the first writings that we have is from April 1559, and it's John, Ulmer's An Arborough for Faithful and True Subjects. And it was one of the first to glorify Anne. And it was a critical response to John Knox's monstrous regiment of women, which is very, very infamous even. Um, and it attacked female monarchy. So Alma portrayed Anne as the root cause of the Reformation, um, remarking at God's capacity to work through women. So not only did this attempt to direct Elizabeth towards a Protestant policy, but it also um, defended and protected female monarchy. And this really set tone for future works on Anne. So similarly with Alma, William Latimer's A Brief Treatise or Chronicle of the Most Virtuous Lady Anne Boleyn attempted to influence Elizabeth's religious policies through Anne. Um, Latimer was actually an evangelical who had served as one of Anne Boleyn's chaplains and had benefited from her support. So he's obviously, he's a big fan of Anne. And this shows in in his writings, Um, he tactfully began his chronicle on the date of Anne's recognition as queen. So removing the intricacy and um, scandal, really, that's of her rise to the throne. So he actually, he presents her as the sort of antithesis of the popular view of her as a capricious and, you know, sort of provocative temptress. Um, In contrast, she's presented as a solemn epitome of female virtue. She oversees the stern morality of her household. She's charitable, pious, and a protector and advocate for Protestants. And so she is this archetypal Protestant queen, and um, Latimer urges Elizabeth to follow in um, Anne's example. So subsequent works on Anne followed this premise of presenting her as a champion of Protestantism, but like I said, they then move into defending the validity of Henry and Anne's marriage. And this is due to the fact that in 1570, Pope Pius V released a bull of excommunication against Elizabeth, while conspiracies such as the Rodolphi plot of 1571 planned to place Mary Queen of Scots on the English throne. And these enjoy these conspiracies to place Mary on the English throne enjoyed papal support. So there was really this growing need to protect Elizabeth's regime as the divide between Catholics and Protestants began to widen. So we have Holpian Full Wells, the flower of fame. Which was published in 1575. And this was a piece of pro Tudor propaganda, which included verse poetry on a selection of Henry VIII's queens. And um, Fulwell included two poems on Anne in this collection, which both reinforced her legality as Henry's wife, but also addressed the controversial subject of her death. And I think. This is the first time where she's presented as a phoenix. So obviously being a mythical bird that, can, um, that regenerates from its own cinders, it's the phoenix is associated with immortality and longevity. So what Fullwell's doing here is proposing that Anne continue to live on through Elizabeth. Fullwell's Anne is comparable to a religious prophet whose beauty and intellect and piety reflected the ideal of queenship and obviously by reimagining Anne as a phoenix he's um, by association conferring these qualities onto Elizabeth. The bravest and my favourite actually of Protestant writings on Anne was John Bridges' Supremacy of Christian Princes and this was published in 1573 and it went so far as to attack Henry and Catherine of Aragon's marriage therefore actually claiming that Catherine was never Henry's legal wife which means that Anne was his first legal wife and therefore that Elizabeth was Henry's first legitimate heir. And what I like about it is that Bridges scrutinizes Henry's accountability for Anne's downfall, which I just think was incredibly brave to do. (laughs) So, what Bridges does is he doesn't directly point the finger at Henry, but what he says is that he was too guilty. He was guilty by being too easily swayed by Catholics who perceived the saintly Anne as a danger to Catholicism and these Catholics schemed to procure her death. So, what he's saying is that Henry was just too gullible basically. And by presenting Anne as a victim of Catholicism, Bridges is actually reconstructing her downfall into that of a martyr. This idea of her being a martyr is um, probably most strongly shown in John Fox's Acts and Monuments, which um, chronicled Protestant history. And unlike other works, Fox's version of Anne was actually centred on her death. So Fox reproduces her scaffold speech, and in it, he tactfully exhibits her innocence And for Fox, the principal defense of Anne's innocence was the fact that God had maintained and raised Elizabeth to be queen. So these Protestant depictions of Anne create this sort of image of an exemplary Protestant queen with a... Divine purpose. Um, And what this does is um, protect the foundations of English Protestantism, um, giving the English church a a respectful pedigree. So Anne's memory could be used as a tool by which Protestants could protect Elizabeth's religious policy and her legitimacy and her claim to the throne. Now, although these works sought to vindicate Anne, Um, their primary function was to glorify Elizabeth you know Elizabeth was the focus of these texts and those who wrote ultimately sought favour with her but it still shows that celebrating and defending Anne um, you know it became a method by which others could advance themselves a suggestion that Elizabeth was known to possess no shame around Anne I think
0: so let's talk a little bit more about Elizabeth's response to these texts that obviously glorified uh, herself, but also her mother's memory. Uh, I imagine people would have been you know, keenly watching to see how she responded to those early texts to give uh, them permission to write further texts. So how did she respond to these, these writings?
2: I think that these documents do reveal a lot about Elizabeth and, the, uh, sub- and her feelings towards Anne. What's surprising to me that I wrote about in my dissertation was the fact that these scholars sought to actually influence Elizabeth's religious policies through the memory of Anne. If her you know, sentiments towards Anne were known to be frosty or just were unknown, because Henry's legacy to the Reformation in these texts, they would, it was just completely shunned in comparison to the glorification of Anne's you know, benefaction to religious reform. So I think if Elizabeth's sentiments were known to have rested solely with Henry, it's doubtful that Henry's role would have been so dramatically diminished in these documents, you know, why not praise just by he- both Henry and Anne rather than choosing to focus, so, you know, solely on Anne. And Elizabeth obviously responded well to these documents because um, while Latimer became Elizabeth's chaplain and clerk of her closet, as well as Canon of Westminster and Dean of Peterborough. So they were promoted. So their works were obviously well received by Elizabeth. And I think what this shows is that she adhered to this Protestant view of Anne as being, you know, lawful, legitimate and innocent and her benefaction to Protestantism. So I think that Elizabeth had similar views as these authors regarding Anne.
0: Absolutely. And now it wasn't only the Protestants, was it, that were using Anne's memory as a tool in order to advance, you know, their religious beliefs. So how did the Catholics depict Anne and how did they use her legacy to, to really attack Elizabeth? This is,
2: um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, So as Elizabeth's reign advanced, the toleration which she afforded English Catholics became foiled with the accession of Pope Pius V in 1566 and the arrival of Mary, Queen of Scots in 1568. The Northern Rebellion of 1569 was the first conspiracy to replace Elizabeth with Mary, and this was supported with papal money. And... um, Pope Pius V issued the reigning on high papal bull in 1570, which excommunicated Elizabeth. And this was renewed twice under Pope Gregory XIII and Sixtus V. And as a result of this, England was forced into this defensive position against Catholicism. And then as a result of this, Catholic publications began to emerge, which undermined Elizabeth's rule, with Anne being the principal method Um, by which this was achieved. And the picture of Anne that emerged in these works became increasingly, you know, grotesque and depraved in order to better attack Elizabeth's Protestant monarchy. And um, it's unfortunate, really, that these conceptions of Anne have lasted, which I'll talk about um, in a second. But um, one of the first to attack Elizabeth through the memory of Anne was Nicholas Harpsfield's treatise on the pretended divorce between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. The fact is that these Catholics were given all of the sort of material that they needed because Anne was accused of such depraved crime. So they were given, all, they just had all of this material at their disposal. Um, so Harpsfield plays on memories of Anne's trial, which allows him to accuse her of premarital sex, for example, with Thomas Wyatt. It's actually quite extraordinary. He notes that Wyatt actually went up to Henry VIII and said to him, um, directly, that you shouldn't marry Anne because I've had a previous sexual relationship with her and she's known to be so loose and base. I just can't see that being true. <laughs> you know, that Thomas Bright would be so brave as to go up to Henry VIII and say, I've had sex with Anne, so don't marry her. And what Harpsfield also does is touch on ideas of witchcraft. He remarks that Henry's, you know, biggest misfortune in being seduced by this, you know, such an incestuous and depraved woman. And this idea of witchcraft was taken further with Nicholas Sanders' The Rise and Growth of the Anglican Schism which was published in 1585. And this was a very very important work because it was the first to appear in print which provided readers with a comprehensive account of the Reformation from an English Catholic outlook and it did a lot to shape European perspectives of the English Reformation So the Anne Boleyn who emerged from this was taken as literal by many throughout Europe. And, you know, he notes that she had a projecting tooth under her upper lip and on her right hand, six fingers. But in the same sentence, he also says that she was pretty to look at. So it's, you know, very, very contradictory. He also then plays on ideas of witchcraft. These were all obviously playing on images, 16th century images of of, of witches. But what he does which I think is the most craziest thing really is that he says that um, Anne was Henry's own daughter. So he notes that Elizabeth Boleyn, who was Anne's mother, had actually been a mistress of Henry VIII and that Anne couldn't have been Thomas Boleyn's daughter because he was away in France when Anne was conceived. Completely not true. <laughs> so actually he's saying here that Henry is um, having you know, relations with his own daughter which means that Elizabeth is also truly incestuous, and he really plays on this by saying that Anne's last miscarriage was a shapeless mass of flesh, and that's you know this sixth finger reference and the her last miscarriage being a deformed fetus. These are the, this is the first time that these came up, and unfortunately, it has sort of creeped into the intellectual framework which surrounds Anne and has lasted until now. And Sander's principal aim in writing this was to depict the Reformation in the most abhorrent light possible and to tarnish Elizabeth's queenship. And his, you know, his attacks were designed to taint Elizabeth's bloodline and bring her queenship into doubt you know he identifies Anne's body as this sort of grotesque productive system which produced um, deformed children you know as a ro- as a result of her sexual corruption witchcraft and heresy and importantly the witchcraft was believed to be hereditary so what he's doing here is actually inferring that Elizabeth could have inherited these you know witchcraft as well and Sa- Sanders Slant's quickly found their way into far-reaching documents um, during the year of the Spanish Armada. And these documents were created to incite rebellion and depose Elizabeth. Um, And it was really a testament, I think, to how Anne's memory could be used on this sort of global scale against Elizabeth. So Pope Sixtus um, V, uh, he renewed the reigning on high papal bull in a declaration of the sentence and deposition of Elizabeth. And in this, all English and Irish subjects were released from their obedience to her. And um, he also supports the assassination of Elizabeth. And the method by which he attempted to achieve this was through listing Elizabeth's inadequacies as a monarch. And Anne Boleyn features as the second cause of Elizabeth's excommunication and was used to justify her assassination. So at this point, Elizabeth is deserving of death for simply being the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And this was reinforced in William Allen's um, an admonition to the nobility and people of England and Ireland. Um, And this was again devised in 1588 and supported the Pope's sentence, but listed Elizabeth's parentage as the principal reason for her inadequacy as queen. And Allen returns to the subject of Anne, reiterating Elizabeth's illegitimacy and reminding readers of the reasons why Anne was executed so back to one of the earlier questions you know the long-term effects of Anne's execution were lasted until 1588
0: you know It, it was big i'm glad that you mentioned that of course these are the first time that we're hearing these stories that nicholas sanders is putting out there, like the deformed fetus story and the sixth finger and, yeah. and the the description that he gives of Anne always makes me laugh because it is so contradictory yeah. as you said and uh, he also i think from memory mentions that she has a deformity around her chin which yeah, interestingly yeah. has come up i've seen people kind of affirm this in in modern yeah. histories of her and i always think no that's comes yeah. way later and you know there's no there's no contemporary evidence to suggest anything like that so it's interesting yeah. how it does seep into kind of popular consciousness yeah. or something like that
2: and it's because of how popular the work was at the time that it was taken as literal by so many people that you know course it's going to sort of filter down. And yeah, like you said, you know, even in Eric Ives' book, which is sort of, you know, it's the Bible of Anne Boleyn, he also, you know, he adheres to the idea that she must have had some sort of deformity on on, you know, on her finger. You know, like you said, there's just no contemporary evidence to suggest that she did. And if she did have any type of deformity, you know, she was so hated that it would have been noted by her contemporaries. Um, and of course her body was actually exhumed um, in Victor- in the Victorian era, and they noted that there was no deformity on her skeleton. So, you know, I really do think it was just completely it was completely made up in order to attack Elizabeth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we also have Nicholas Sanders to thank for her having black hair that we've all sort of just come to assume that her hair was, yeah. you know, her hair was probably auburnish. I I think. Mm. But the fact, you know, he was trying to paint the picture of a witch, as you say, and, and the black hair and the protruding tooth and all this. But, yeah, but I don't think I've seen any other contemporary evidence to say that Anne's hair was black.
2: No, I, I haven't either. Um, she, I've seen that she, you know, had black eyes, but contemporaries, you know, noted that she wasn't the handsomest woman in the world. I think that was one, one, one um, description of her. But, you know, I, I think how she hooked Henry was through her intellect, really. And the fact that she argued with him, you know, (laughs) but this is going into a different subject, but, but yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Now, do you think that Elizabeth genuinely believed in her mother's innocence and her legitimacy?
2: Yes. I I don't see any evidence to suggest that she didn't. I think that the fact that she promoted and had close relationships with her Berlin relatives, that she did openly speak out about, um, and Henry's marriage, um, Anne's chastity, that she promoted Protestant authors who wrote positively about Anne Boleyn, that she kept a portrait of Anne on her finger for nearly 30 years. I think all of this suggests that she genuinely believed in Anne's innocence and her legitimacy as Henry's queen.
0: Well, I completely agree with you, Jack. So there you go. <laughs> now, um, at the end of episodes of Talking Tudors, we, we play what's called a little game of 10 to go. So these are just 10 mm-hmm. questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So first question, what was the last film or perhaps series, TV series that you watched?
2: I'm currently actually very related to this. Um, there's a series at the moment, it's a comedy on the BBC, and it's called Witchfinders. Um, And I'm currently watching that at the moment It's just a a sort of a spoof On uh, set during the Civil War And it's about witch hunters um, Finding witches and things in England Yeah, it just, it really shows How crazy all of that was (laughs) But it is entertaining um, And I'm quite enjoying it I'm watching that now And what is something that you love About where you live? Well, I live in Manchester at the moment uh for doing my phd it's just such a sort of young vibrant vibrant city i've lived in london too and i refer to it manchester as sort of a miniature version of london without the hustle and bustle but still being a you know sort of you know this young vibrant city and yeah i I just i just love it there love going there's lots lots of places to you know go and eat and um go out for drinks and things like that it's just um a very very trendy city i think (laughs) Awesome.
0: And when you're not studying and, you know, delving into the archives, what do you like to do to relax and unwind?
2: I think going to the gym a few times a week helps decompress. Um, Going on long walks, which is one downside, I think, to actually living in Manchester is the fact that there's not really many walks that you can do around. Um, So you have to go out of Manchester in order to go on some country walks. But try and do that once a week.
0: And also, I think a glass of wine on a Friday or a Saturday night (laughs) <laughs> that sounds good. And what was a favourite childhood book, or, or perhaps a childhood toy?
2: I would say I used to have a Roald Dahl collection, and um, I used to love all of his books. Really, and um, my favourites were *James and the Giant Peach*, and also I think a lesser-known one called *The Twits*. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would have to say those two. Yeah, yeah and my favourite childhood toy I had. You know, the old fashioned Game Boys, which, you know, just massive bricks flip up. (laughs) Yeah, I used to play on that constantly.
0: What's a new skill that you would like to learn? I would like to get better at reading
2: contemporary documents, I think, actually without translations side to side. And there are actually courses, I think, at my university currently where I can do that. And I think that's something that I'm definitely going to do during my PhD
0: yeah fantastic there's actually some good ones online too that um that i have found when i've been searching for them so if anyone's interested anyone listening i might put some links to those on the show notes actually ideal saturday night for you jack
2: some wine and some pasta and a favorite tv show again a method of method to relax at the end of the week
0: (laughs) good so i was going to ask you what your favorite comfort food was so
2: is it pasta Um, It is. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm going on holiday actually um, in May to Italy and I'm going solely really to gorge on authentic Italian
0: pasta. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That sounds great. There's nothing like homemade, you know, ravioli or gnocchi that's just Mm. delicious. And what about eBooks or print books? Which would you go for? Print books. With my um,
2: PhD Everything I read is an ebook, really, because you just have so much access online to everything. But, you know, nothing can really beat having a book in front of you, I think, where you can bookmark and, you know, underline things. And so, yeah, yeah, definitely print books.
0: Absolutely. The Kindles are good, aren't they? All the e-readers e- when you go on holiday and you don't want to obviously mm. carry lots of books. But yeah, as you say, there's nothing like a, an actual book at the end of the day, you know, holding it. It's yeah. fantastic. Uh, What about a person, it can be a contemporary person or someone from history, just someone that inspires you and maybe why they inspire you.
2: Is it a cop-out to say that Anne Boleyn inspires (laughs) you? No, please go ahead. (laughs) No. You know, as a kid, um, she always fascinated me and um, I think inspires me because she was just so, I feel, ahead of her time that she still resonates with people today because of her intelligence and her ability to change things I think you know so yeah she's just she's always been a huge source of inspiration for me I think and that she just completely defied the um, you know 16th century ideals of women you know she just refused to conform
0: to these constraints and um, I just think that's fantastic and the very last thing I promise, Jack, is a tutor <laughs> takeaway. So I ask all my guests for a little something for our listeners to check out after the show. So do you have a tutor takeaway for us? Yeah. So
2: I um, contribute towards writing for um, Team Queens, it's called. And it's a sort of educational blog and uh, educational social media posts on Twitter and Instagram. And it's basically um, everything to do with queenship. So what we do is we choose um, particular queens to write about from all over the world. So not just England or Europe, but everywhere. Um, and just write, um, you know, bios on them, essentially. Lots and lots of Tudor queens on there. I think every Tudor queen has been done on there <laughs> at the moment. So, yeah, definitely a Tudor takeaway.
0: Fantastic. Yes, I do follow you guys on Twitter, I think it is. So mm. I will add links to, to those in our show notes so everyone can, can go on and check that out. Well, Jack, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking Tudors with us. Uh,
2: thank you for having me.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.